You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast, from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, SpyCast brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns about SpyCast, or if you want to suggest someone who might be a good future guest, email us at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Also, if you like what you hear, and even if you don't, please take a minute to review us on iTunes or whatever platform you might be listening. We're always looking for ways to make SpyCast better, and you can help. Welcome back to Curator's Corner. If anyone's joining us for the very first time, a special welcome to you. Uh, we have doing programs now throughout the summer, virtually. Uh, so if this is your first time joining us, please come back. Check out what else we have to offer. We have an amazing... Uh, panel today. I mean, it's one of the ones where just kind of looking at the screen and kind of laughing to myself. It's wonderful in a way that we're able to grab these people in different parts of the world in the country uh, to bring them all together for this conversation. So I don't know what it looks like on your screen, but to my upper left, I'm going to introduce John Mendez, who's a former chief of disguise at the CIA. Uh, and if you thought your job title was interesting, forget it. She has the coolest <laughs> former job title in the history of the universe. Um, she, her operational uh, experience included responsibilities in some of the most hostile theaters of the Cold War, including Havana, Beijing, Moscow, and even the Oval Office. And that's a wonderful story uh, that you can find her talking about other places. She's currently an author, lecturer, teacher, and consultant on intelligence matters. She's co-written several books uh, with her late husband, Tony Mendez, including Spy Dust, The True Story of Espionage and Romance, Argo, of course, and most recently, The Moscow Rules, which has just come out in paperback. Thank you, Jana. Tracy Walder is a former staff operations officer at the CIA's Counterterrorism Center and a former special agent in the FBI's Los Angeles field office, where she specialized on Chinese counterintelligence operations. And if you thought you were an overachiever, forget about it. Nothing compares to Tracy. She has taught high school history and government courses at the Hockaday School in Dallas, Texas, and now she's on the board of directors for Girls Security, a nonprofit, nonpartisan group that brings national security curriculum to girls in high school throughout the United States. She is the author of the book, The Unexpected Spy, From the CIA to the FBI, My Secret Life, Taking Down Some of the World's Most Notorious Terrorists. And then last but not least is Joe Weisberg, who worked in the CIA's director of operations in the early 1990s. After leaving the agency, he worked as a novelist and teacher. We have a good theme here from educators. 
Then he created FS Network's critically acclaimed and Emmy-winning drama series, The Americans, on which he served as a co-showrunner. He also wrote or co-wrote many of the series' best episodes, including the pilot in the ridiculously good series finale. I'm not sure if there are a lot of series that end on such a great way. I mean, it's, it's really hard to end that kind of thing. And just, wow. Uh, so Joe, thank you so much for joining us. Jonna, Tracy as well. Uh, we're going to have some fun today uh, talking about life after the intelligence world. Uh, but let's start with a softball question, get everybody warmed up. This is going to be your one softball question, and then it's going to get a little more complicated. So Jonna, let me start with you. So when you joined CIA, not to age you, but when you joined CIA, there weren't that many women at CIA doing real intelligence work. They were kind of relegated to other things. So what got you into disguise and eventually getting to the point of being chief of disguise at CIA? Wow, that's a big question. I'm gonna try and give you the condensed version. Uh, I joined the CIA overseas. I was in uh, Europe. Uh, I was working at Chase Manhattan Bank, actually. I uh, met a group of young people. I thought they were military civilian employees. They were not, they were CIA living their cover. Ended up marrying one, um, went around the world with him three or four times, it seems. Um, and ended up back in Washington as a secretary at CIA. Uh, a lot of women ended up as secretaries at CIA. That was your first assignment. And then back then, the job was to get out of the secretarial pool. Um, I had a passion for photography. My, my, I was working for the director of a huge office. I was gonna leave. I was gonna go to work at the Smithsonian. He said, take a photo course. And I did. And I segued into being a photo operations officer. I got into disguise because of one summer assignment where I spent two months doing some work in a part of the world that I wanted to live in. And the only job coming up was a disguise officer two years out. So I said, so train me up in disguise and um, off we went. And that's basically the really, really, really short version. <laughs> so Tracy, let me move to you. As your book explains, you were a relatively stereotypical Southern California sorority girl uh, turned intelligence officer. I, I, I imagine when you go back and talk to your former sorority sisters, I guess it's current sorority sisters, I don't know how it works exactly. Uh, there weren't that many that went into that field. So what drew you to the CIA from college? Um, so for me, a kind of a critical turning point, I guess, in my life was 1997. Um, I was sitting in my room in my sorority house and Peter Bergen and Peter Arnett were interviewing this, this guy named Osama bin Laden. Um, and I think there was a lot of political culture going on in the time. Um, there was a, a JCC close to where I was in school um, that a gunman had come in and I'm Jewish. And at that time, bin Laden had issued a fatwa against the United States, but also against the Jews. And I think that really piqued my interest, I guess, um, and made me curious about counterterrorism. What was it? Who was this guy? Um, and so I went to a career fair at school um, as one does, and saw a table uh, for CIA. I knew that they did counterterrorism. Um, I handed them my resume, and the rest is 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 history, as they say. Yes. Well, Joe, so you went from a relatively elite Chicago prep school to Yale, uh, which is the entry point to the CIA that's more late 1940s than necessarily 1990s. And I do have to commend you for, we've now gone about six minutes, and you haven't mentioned that you went to Yale. so. The resist, you're able to resist that urge that I know all of you Yale graduates have to mention that within the first 30 seconds of any conversation. 
So this is again not the normal route, right? I mean, a lot of the you know the the Ivy League conduit to the agency ended uh, certainly with the Vietnam War and everything after that. What drew you to the agency coming out of you know again the Chicago Prep School? You went to one of the best in the world, Yale, of course, the best in the world, and you could have done anything. What led you to CIA? First, I want to say that your your point that it was sort of unusual at the time I did it is is really something kind of important to me or sort of important to the story. I didn't know, not only did I not know anybody from my high school, from growing up, from college, not only did I not know anybody who joined the CIA, I didn't know anybody who considered it, thought about it, ever would have thought about it, and if they had heard about it, wouldn't have thought it was a crazy, terrible idea. So it was really, for my milieu, really odd. I think that's part of what I liked about it. I think I was someone who liked to try different things and do things that seemed weird and that other people wouldn't do. And and in a more serious level of that, I think I felt without quite realizing it, that my, that I had kind of a narrow, something was narrow about my view. I don't think it was really conscious, but it seemed like a chance to sort of expand out and see things I wouldn't have otherwise seen. But what was actually going on in my head was, I was very interested in Soviet history and politics. I studied that in school. I, I'd taken it very seriously. And I was just a real cold warrior. And I wanted to do, I wanted to fight. I wanted to help destroy the evil empire. And there, you know, the CIA was sort of, if that's what you thought, that was a place to go do it. So the premise of this conversation in a broad sense is what each of you decided to do post-intelligence career. So I'm gonna start with Jonna and then go to Joe. And Tracy, I'm really gonna have you bring this all together for us in the end. So let me start with you, Jonna. You, you spent a career at CIA, decades, uh, living a life of secrecy where you could barely say anything to anyone. Afterwards, you're working with your husband, Tony Mendez. He writes an article in Wired, it becomes a screenplay, and then, my God, it's now the best picture, Argo, uh, with Ben Affleck playing your husband. I mean, that had to be surreal. So I'm wondering during the process of how much you and Tony felt the responsibility to get things right. Are we, are we worried about the reaction from those that you knew still in the business? Were we worried about the message that you're potentially sending out about what was real and not real within CIA? And of course, you now have the movie that is the most talked about movie in the world. Uh, how much did that kind of shock the system? I want to say, can I take the whole hour? But I'm not going to do that. <laughs> um, you know, writing that series of events was like was like being part of an electrical current that was that was running down a wire. We couldn't have anticipated it. We didn't try and trigger it. It, it pretty much happened, and we just went along for the ride. Tony didn't want to tell the Argo story, for instance. Uh, George Tenet directed him to go to the New York Times, talk to Tim Wiener, and tell the story. Tony said, we can't do that. It's, you know, it's classified. Tenet said, yeah, you can do that, Tony. Go do it. Um, it was really hard for him initially to even give an interview. It, was, it went against everything that we had ever been taught and that we had taught to our colleagues ourselves. So it was a it was a tough time. As it went on, when the movie started percolating, Tony said, "You know what's going to happen to our story? It's going to get dramatized. It's going to become more everything. It's going to just veer away from what it is." So he said, "Let's write the book. Let's let's put it down on paper how it really was." And if you read the book Argo and you've seen the movie Argo you'll see there are enormous differences in the story. The heart of the story is the same. He went in, 
he rescued these people. He brought them out against some very sticky odds. And we, we always stayed in touch with those people. But the interesting part, I think, is after, after that, after the Oscars, after we got all dressed up like we were going to the prom. And, and then we set out with serious purpose to speak to the American public. It was an opportunity that, that didn't exist. We went up to New York where we thought a lot of people probably just hate the CIA just on principle. And we spoke to huge groups of people, just as two normal professional people about what it is that the CIA does and how they do it and the kind of people that are there. So we set out to help give the CIA a little bit of good publicity. And it kept segueing, it kept flowing, more books came. It, 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 um, when we were working, we had always said, why not do something worth doing? Why not, if you're gonna work your entire life, why not make a difference? Why not try and participate? And I think what happened is we didn't walk away from that when we left the CIA. We kept that in front of us and we kept going after that, right. that, same, that same thing. It was an amazing run. So Joe, you created the pilot for the Americans. You wrote the pilot sometime before the show was created. It kind of sat in a drawer, I guess, and you waited for the right time. The show ends up on FX, so it's not as great as FX is. It's not ABC, NBC, it's a basic cable network. You have no idea if it's going to be popular. Uh, your cast is extraordinary. We all know them now. But, you know, if anyone had watched Felicity, the Carrie Russell, one person that was kind of really famous was the opposite of her normal character. Uh, but, of course, it becomes a huge hit, a massive huge hit, Emmy-winning dr drama series. So let me ask you the question, how do you balance wanting to be realistic? Because that's really what the show is heralded for without boring the audience to death. Because as we all know, intelligence work can be tedious. 99% of it is sitting in front of a computer or reading documents. How do you not make it so Hollywood that it becomes ridiculous, but at the same time maintaining the elements of what, and there's so much realism about sleepers and illegals and Russians and counterintelligence. That's why we love talking about this show at the Spy Museum. How do you make that perfect balance that the show turned out to be? That really was, kind of the fundamental question of, of creating the show and making the show. You know, I had previously written a spy novel and when I started the novel, I thought, okay, I have this kind of unusual amount of information about this world from having worked there for a couple of years. I'm going to write the most realistic spy novel that's ever been written. It was ambitious, but I thought I would do that. And I wrote about three chapters and I saw exactly what you're saying. It was unreadable, it was so boring, it was very, honest, but it was not interesting. And so I thought, okay, scrap that plan. What I'm, my new goal is to write a pretty realistic spy novel. <laughs> and then that allowed me to sort of dramatize it and, and come up with a story. And so I, I went into the Americans with a, with a, you know, more realistic plan than my original book plan. The plan was let's do as far as I can, and as far as we can, the most realistic thing about espionage that's been on TV. That's a mo much lower bar. It didn't have to be totally realistic but you know I, I you know I tried for example really to take the trade the tradecraft is one of the things that is most exaggerated and goes bananas in TV and movies and that's one where the actual stuff is really interesting right. it's not it's not a loss to show the actual thing it, it's more interesting and you know in terms of the overall story and some of the stuff it got most realistic around the sort of murders and crazy stuff that Philip and Elizabeth did 
but one of the guys who had been among those 10 illegals that got arrested gave an interview in which he said that although that stuff was all crazy, the show really did capture emotionally what it was like for his family. And that that was a, the biggest compliment we could have gotten. I felt right. like it's a so Tracy, you became an educator after leaving the FBI and a mentor for young women who are looking forward to a career in national security. So I have two questions for you. First is, how much did popular culture affect the views of those that you taught? And did you feel a responsibility to kind of guide their understanding of fact versus fiction with these young women, uh, both at Hockaday School and then later on? Um, so, so for me, um, I guess kind of what Joe was talking about before I was, you know, in college in, in the 90s and, you know, pop culture back then was very different than it is now. And we had, we didn't have the Americans, we didn't have Homeland, we didn't have, you know, any of those shows didn't exist, right? So I personally had no preconceived notions of what the CIA was and, and, and what they did. But I do think I owe it to my students. Um, I owe it to the agency. I owe it to the Bureau to be as honest and forthcoming as possible in terms of dispelling the myths, the myths and sort of the craziness that's out there um, in pop culture. I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing to have that out there, but unfortunately, sometimes it creates unrealistic expectations. Um, a lot of times uh, I'll have students that will come up to me and say, um, so, you know, at the CIA, when do I get issued my gun? Um, and, you know, the CIA is not a law enforcement organization and that's actually not how it works. Or, you know, when am I going to fly on my private jet um, at the FBI? I get so many questions about that. And so I think part of the problem, though, is we don't want people getting into these industries um, that expect those things um, and that are there to have those things. Uh, we want people that are going to stay there and have realistic expectations. So I try to be as realistic as possible um, in terms of couching the organization. Well, let me ask you about that realism because this is going to be a little bit more of a hard-hitting question. Your experience, especially at FBI, was not particularly good. How do you tell your students the truth about these agencies? Because this is not like when Jana joined CIA and you would kind of expect there to be some level of misogyny and chauvinism. We're talking only a couple years ago that you were at FBI where you would think we'd be long beyond that. So how do you tell them the truth without biasing them against service? How do you lay that out so that they can make the right decision? That's a really good question, actually. Um, I think, you know, because my experience at CIA was so positive, I think to Jonna's point, it was very positive there. I had such a great experience. And as you know, as a woman, um, I was harassed significantly at the FBI. And I, I was very apprehensive about putting that chapter in there because I felt somewhat of a failure a little bit, um, even though I graduated from the academy and all of that. But then I realized putting it out there actually is helpful. Um, I talk about the work that I do. I talk about the cases that I ran. Um, but I do feel with my students, even though I had been teaching for 10 years, I just recently came forward and started talking about my experience there about three or four years ago um, because I didn't want to turn them off. But then I realized it's part of that realistic experience that I need to give them um, about these organizations. Um, and it doesn't seem to turn them off. I've had several students that have you know, gone into the Bureau, but they've gone in now with open eyes and realistic expectations. And so I think, I think that piece is important. Thank you. So Joe, uh, one of the things, and maybe the thing that makes the Americans so great as a TV show uh, is that the United States audience can empathize and even root for Soviet KGB spies, right? I mean, like you, I grew up 
my master's degree is in US Soviet foreign policy. You know, the Soviets were the big baddies. And I'm watching this like, you know, go Philip, go Elizabeth. And it's just, it's surreal to me because it's about the people, it's about the family. Would you say the greatest service that you've been able to do with the Americans is showing the personal side of intelligence that it's made up of people and families and, and relationships? I think that that was what was you know appealing to me about it I, there were really two things there was one idea which was a little more heady which is the first thing you're talking about which is being able to show hey there are all these preconceived notions about people in the soviet union people in the kgb and they're and they're kind of off base and here's a chance to have a corrective but but on the on the on a more personal level my other goal was that you know working at the cia i, I worked with all these i didn't have kids at the time but i worked with all these people who did and who had had all these all different experiences with having to not tell their kids the truth about what they did until one day they did tell them the truth about it. And people had all kinds of different things happen at that point. You know, no, no two people tell the same story. But that struck me as both incredibly human, incredibly emotional, and in completely specific to an intelligence organization. And so the chance to sort of put that on TV did seem like a chance to say, here's something unique and emotional going on. John, there's so much of this aspect in what you've done from Spy Dust, where you talk about your relationship with Tony, to Argo, which is about not only families, but about relationships between individuals. Uh, and you can also talk about it firsthand. I mean, disguise is so personal. Uh, you're, you're you know, getting up and it's about relationships and people and everything else. Um, this has to be something that you, you, I know I've watched you give dozens and dozens and dozens of talks. And you certainly talk about this personal element about how the CIA potentially should not be seen as this kind of monolithic body, but as a group of people. That's absolutely true. Um, that was, uh, if, we had, if we had ever written down our goals when we really started going public and talking, that would have been somewhere in the top of that list is to humanize uh, rather than demonize this organization that's full of uh, just extremely fine, fine people. The, um, the human element was such a big part of, of what we did and what I did, um, from a disguise point of view, what kept me there all those years was the sense that I was offering physical protection to a couple of groups of people, one to our case officers, to our own CIA officers who were out there doing God knows what, breaking some laws in foreign countries, working at the direction of our government, taking taking risks. If they didn't take the risks, they couldn't, they couldn't bring home the prize on the one hand. On the other hand, there was a, a very good sized group of foreign agents working for us. Think Moscow. Think of the risks that they were taking when they decided they would join hands with the West, they would provide us with the kind of information that we needed for our policymakers. They were taking giant steps. And if they were caught, if they were apprehended, we all know what happened to them. They would, there would be some kind of show trial and they would be executed. And there were a number of them that were executed. So using the disguise skills that, that we could deliver could, could allow our case officers to move away from the KGB surveillance and get over to the other side where they could meet with these, these agents that were risking their lives, working for us, could get the information, give them the requirements, keep the whole thing safe, keep everybody alive. I found that to be a very empowering, compelling reason to, to work and to keep doing the work. 
and then with, with the photography side of it, which the, was the first half of my career, was teaching those same foreign agents how to collect the information that we desperately needed without being caught. And that involved using those tiny cameras, some which are in the museum that we put in key fobs and Montblanc pens and lipsticks. We put them in everything, film cameras. Um, the work was really satisfying. So John, let me ask you a follow-up question. Joe mentioned the idea of being able to talk to one of the Russian 10 and kind of get the idea of, you know, almost what, what he had done and a, a grade on that. You've now had the opportunity over the last, you know, since the Cold War ended to talk to many people who you were working against uh, during the time that you were at CIA. Going back to this idea of people and family and individuals and relationships, what was the most shocking thing to you about meeting people from the other side? Kind of the fact that, that basically we are, we are all alike. I'm talking about helping our government, making a difference, do something that matters. It's exactly what they thought they were doing for their government. Uh, it's the human, the human element that just, just ties all of this together. I will never forget uh, uh, meeting our counterpart in a bar in uh, Georgetown. This was arranged that we would meet him. Uh, a man who did what we did for them. And he brought a gift from Russia. It was a, one of those matryoshka. It was a small one with little bitty dolls inside of dolls inside of dolls. And Tony, who had worked directly against him, kind of discovered that there was no conversation that could be had. There was no common ground there that they could occupy. And so we kind of sat and we're drinking our things and there's the matryoshka. And finally, uh, the man's name was um, Oleg. He looks at Tony and he said, that Xerox machine. And Tony just looks at him. <laughs> said, yeah. And Oleg said, brilliant. <laughs> that was it. That was it. And in that, I don't know, 10 seconds, Tony is doing this fast rewind, like, oh crap. Then what we thought, it just, you could see him just, <laughs> it was it was a crazy crazy moment and it was just uh, uh that happened more than once we'll be right back after this the it world used to be simpler you only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled then came new technologies and new ways to work now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. So, Tracy, Vince, I guess, just something about that, too. I don't Please. know... John, have you ever, did you ever meet Victor Cherkashin? No. So he, he was uh, the KGB officer who ran Ames and Hansen. So, you know, yeah. he was a big deal. And he wrote a book called uh, Spy Handler. And it was very uh, moving and influential book to me because it's yeah, probably back there. So I think I seem a token. Yeah, it's somewhere behind me. But, you know, when he describes himself and his friends and colleagues at the KGB, Boy, they sound a, sound a lot like me and my friends at the CIA. And that sure. was a real surprise. I had so many prejudices against them 
that, and you couldn't deny it, the things he was writing were things you could make up. These were, as John said, human beings trying to serve their country. Not all of them, but most of them. So Tracy, oh, sorry. They had, slightly, they had slightly different rules. Our friend Ola Kalugan, who's on the board of our spy museum and was a member of the KGB at one point, said they had basically one main rule at KGB, and that was that there were no rules. That was the rule. That was the rule they operated under. A little different than, yeah, yeah. But a rule. <laughs> Oleg likes to, to elaborate, perhaps a little. Yeah, it's, it's, in, a, in a police state, there were some rules. But yes, Oleg, Oleg is very colorful. Tracy, as somebody really dedicated the time to focus on educating the next generation of leaders, let me ask you, and I'm going to ask Jonna and, and Joe as follow-up to this as well, but you've really kind of been on the ground so much. What do you see as the biggest problems facing those of us, and, and really it's all of us here, the museum as a whole, in correctly preparing the next generation for service and national security or intelligence? Like, is there one thing that's, I know it's, I know it's, I'm putting you on the spot, right? I, I purposely didn't warn you about this question because I want it to be spontaneous. But what, what's the one thing that you go, God, you need to make sure they know X, because if they don't, we're in trouble. I think there's a couple, can I, can I say two yeah, things? Sure, be okay. Um, so I think the first one, I think going back to what you were talking about with Jonna, sort of the humanity part of it, uh, particularly because I dealt in terrorism, um, there's obviously a lot of hostility towards that. Um, so obviously I don't empathize with terrorists, but I do try to share a lot of the conversations and things like that that I, that I had with terrorists, um, with students, because I do think there are sort of these misunderstandings um, that are out there. But I would actually say one of the biggest things that I'm seeing that's, that's lacking in education, and I taught at a very rigorous, very prestigious school, um, is understanding of politics, uh, excuse me, understanding of geography and geopolitics. Um, there's not that fundamental understanding and necessity of realizing why we need to be teaching those things. I mean, even in uh, with Crimea, I was, I was trying to teach my students about Crimea. When I just put up a map and showed them the issue and what they were really fighting over right there, you know, students understood that. And I think part of the problem with foreign policy and national security and, and espionage is that it is complex and that's okay, but we have to find a way to make it palatable and understandable um, to sort of that younger generation. And one of the easiest ways that we can do that is actually with, with an understanding of geography. So John and John, I'm gonna ask you a slightly very, a variation of this question. And, and so because you both tend to deal less with students and more directly with the public as a whole. So what, starting with Jonna, what would you argue is the, the, the biggest challenge to getting the public as a whole to correctly understanding the, the, the role of CIA and intelligence in, in a broader American national security? What are they missing? And, and, and feel free to bring as much politics into this as you want to. That's your purview, not mine. But um, what, what do you think is the most important message to get across to those that don't understand? Well, you know, uh, bringing politics in, I think I have a lot that I could say about politics, but I don't particularly like to say it in a venue like this because people, it just shuts down a group of yeah. people that, that would be listening. So let me answer and, and, and kind of pull the politics aside. Politics aside, the job of the CIA and, and most of the other pieces of the intelligence community is to collect facts, to look for patterns, 
to find out what are the plans and intentions, and to take what is basically the truth to the policymakers. It stops there. The policymakers take that information and they do what they think is best with the information that we provide to them. That's gotten a little muddied. You have to you have to know what even even the idea of what is the truth and and you know is there more than one truth and it's it's murky and and actually it's really not there there are these basic facts that cannot be swept away and cannot be uh, misused they are the facts i i think until we kind of get to a place where we get back to that point where everyone accepts that these intelligence uh, organizations are collecting analyzing writing opinions about the facts in the world and that there is not a bias and that um, there, here I go and that there is no deep state <laughs> <laughs> you have to have a baseline where you can start working from we've always had that baseline it comes out of the the national intelligence estimates at the CIA and when that information is no longer accepted when it's questioned this whole thing just starts crumbling. Um, I can't wait to see it start being defended again. So Joe, same same premise, same question. Uh, when you're thinking about, you know, what what needs to be done from your perspective of the general public based on not only the Americans, but also your CIA career, what do you think is the biggest roadblock standing in the way of the average American or the American public writ large understanding the role not only of American intelligence but broader, right? You know, you focus on Russian intelligence and, and understanding how this geopolitical dance works in the 21st century. Well, first, I want to strongly agree with everything Jana said. I think that's very important. And then I, I would just add that it's very tough with an intelligence organization because it's an organization that is built on secrecy. So to to get the public a realistic assessment of an organization like that, it, it may not, it may just not happen. You know, that you just don't get the kind of fact-based stuff that can compete with the popular culture, with the people who had such bad experiences that they just want to tear it down, with people who just will support it no matter what. It, it's hard to get anything kind of, you know, objective in there um, when you're keeping secrets. And I guess the, uh, I guess the only thing I would say is that I, I like to make the point that one thing you know the CIA is, is it's an organization. And so it's going to be like any organization. It's going to do good things and bad things. It's going to have successes and failures. It, you know, it's going to be right. It's going to be wrong. You know, if you if you if your expectation of it is that it's just this heroic bunch of people that is always going to save the day, or that they're just these dastardly people trying to destroy other countries, you're, you that that couldn't be true. That couldn't be true. Okay, so Tracy. <laughs> What what what's the five-year plan to steal a Soviet concept behind it? What's next for Tracy Walder? What do you what do you what are you looking forward to doing in the next little while? What I assume teaching is part of this because that is kind of really what you've dedicated yourself to. So what can we expect from Tracy in the next couple of years? Um, so for me, um, I just took um, an adjunct professor job actually at uh, TCU or Texas Christian University um, in Fort Worth. Um, and so I'm going to be teaching women in intelligence and women in law enforcement, I guess sort of using both my my career paths. Um, so I'm, I'm really, really excited about that. I think kind of one of my biggest 
goals is to get more women um, into these professions. It's not that men aren't valuable. They absolutely are. Um, but I think, you know, the women's boys and women are pretty underrepresented um, in some of these organizations. And so I'm really excited now to um, be teaching at, at the college level um, and teaching students who will basically be going directly into the career field. So that's what's up next for me. Jana, what do we got? Other than spending a lot of time at the Spy Museum helping us out, uh, what, what's next for Jana? Well, that's always been fun. Uh, this quarantine kind of threw my plans into a, a bit of a turmoil. Um, I thought I had my year mapped out and then it got unmapped suddenly. So um, after painting my condominium, falling off the ladder only, only once, I'm, I'm, I'm past that, I thought I'd start a new book and I'm um, what 85, 90 pages into that book. And uh, that's quite entertaining until I sprained my wrist yesterday. I'm, I'm sitting here with my, with, my, with my wrist being protected by some Trader Joe peas frozen. <laughs> so we're, we're healing as we, as we speak. Working on that book is, is gonna be um, uh, the next piece that I, that I, uh, that I have underway. And it's, uh, it was, it was, it was actually requested. My agent thought that uh, a memoir, uh, my memoir, a woman in the CIA would be interesting. And, and uh, so I kind of sketched something out for them and they said, well, this is all very rosy, peachy, lovely, optimistic. Um, weren't there some problems? <laughs> I said, well, no, it was actually, it was, it was pretty straightforward. It was, it was, I was good at what I did and the career went great. And then I started thinking, you know, <laughs> these are like breadcrumbs. I, I put them somewhere and I thought, well, there was this, it was this. And then, then there was that, that thing that happened. Actually, that thing that happened was really awful. So, um, so I'm sprinkling some of those, uh, some of the misogyny into my very optimistic career <laughs> review. And I know you've been. I know you've been spending time making sure that people understand the the legacy of your late husband Tony, uh, who, uh, for those of you, anyone who is younger, uh, there he is. <laughs> there he um, is. Wow. Hi, Tony. Yeah. For for most of for most of the people who are younger, they only know him as Ben Affleck, basically from Argo, and they don't necessarily got the chance to learn the real Tony Mendez. And so I know you've been kind of setting out to make sure people understand who your husband was. He was a great guy. You know, he was he was an artist when he was um, when he was interviewed for the um, for the CIA. He was he was working in um, in Denver. He was drawing wiring harnesses for Titan II missiles. An artist. I mean, this is what he was doing to make money so he could paint pictures at night. And he he met one of our recruiters and um, had this interview. And Tony came away and thought, what if I want an artist for it, the CIA? What would he do? Well, they couldn't tell him because it was classified. So they finally hired him, of course. Actually, they hired him rather quickly. And it turned out they wanted a counterfeiter forger. And Tony was excellent at that. He had exquisite hand-eye. You know, he could he could and did do most things. And I, I would just, just one tiny story. Uh, he was so good that, that we oversaw some of the printing some of the official American documents that go around the world. We were at uh, Dulles Airport once, going to France, got to the front of the line, the mountain of luggage and a little boy, and Tony hands the passports over. Now, Tony at this point was Mr. Documents. He was the guy. 
hands the passports and the, the French Air France guy holds it like this, like it's, and he said, oh, I'm so sorry, it, it is, she has expired. So Tony comes over to the mountain of luggage and me and our three-year-old, and he looks at me and he said, you know, he said five minutes in the men's room, I can fix this. <laughs> and I said, Tony, I think that would be a felony. <laughs> This is certainly before 9-11, right? Where you, yeah, you end, up in, you end up in Gitmo now if you do that. So let's- Yeah, so this was about your moral compass too. This was just his gut reaction. He, he, he wasn't really gonna do it, but he wanted me to know that he could do it. You know, so he went to the passport office and he had a new passport the next day. The passport office was excellent. And off we went. So Joe, same question for you. I know that you, uh, you're working on a book as well. Yeah, I'm working on a couple TV projects, but not espionage related. And then I'm working on a nonfiction book about kind of Soviet history and Russian history and politics and the kind of idea, the premise that I, I misunderstood a lot about the Soviet Union at the time. And I think that some of the mistakes I made are being made more broadly in trying, trying to understand Russia today. Great. Oh, I see Amanda has popped up on the screen. That means it's, it's Q&A time. We want to open this up to the and audience. We have just been getting great questions throughout this, and some are very targeted and some are broad, but I love this question, and I bet you've never been asked this. This comes to us from London from a PhD student who is focusing on the relationship of intelligence studies and performance, and this person, this is wild. They want to know, how does it compare to be a civilian now, you find yourself as a civilian, do you perform the role of a spy? And how did that compare to when you were a spy and had to perform the role of being a civilian? <laughs> I think that's a heck of a question. <laughs> Who are you directing it to? <laughs> that's for whoever is willing to take that on. I would, I would suggest that being a spy and having the cover of being a civilian might be actually more straightforward than the flip side of it, being a civilian and, and actually doing spy-like things. Uh, on, the, on the one hand, you're inside the structure, you're inside of the paradigm if you're a spy living your cover. You know how to do that. I mean, they train you enormous training you have all kinds of support you're in the system but if you're a civilian you're outside of all of that you are on your own it depends on where you are and what you're doing and who you're who you're after and who your target is and you know what you need to get I, I think I think the inside position would be easier to to maintain so Joe, let me tweak this question for you. I mean, do you think it's more difficult or, or it's a bigger skill set for Matthew and Carrie to play Philip and Elizabeth than it would be for any case officer to pretend to be a business person or something else? Is that is is that harder to do? Uh, I think John had hinted at the whole training aspect of it, but obviously actors, you know, they go to Juilliard and they get trained and other things like that too as well. Or is it so similar that maybe there should be a closer relationship between acting and being a case officer. Yeah, I've heard I've heard both them and others make that point a lot that there is a great similarity. There's a lot of there's a lot of acting in in both cases, which I which I think is pretty interesting. 
it, it's in the, in a sort of connected, somebody might, might have to draw this connection better than I can, but one of the most interesting things I ever heard them say about all this was that, you know, obviously when they're in actors, they're in a role and they're playing some part. When they were in disguise on the show, that was their favorite thing. They felt that it, a lot of actors will tell you that what they love about acting is that it liberates them. They don't have to be themselves anymore. They can be somebody else for a while. When they were in disguise, they felt that like times a hundred. And they just, it was like their characters, their acting characters were liberated. And it was really a great experience. So I thought that was pretty great. That's one of the things that made your show so exceptional. I was watching the disguise pieces of it, you know, really, really closely. And he in particular, would not just put on those mousy wigs and you know turn into this kind of nerd sort of, but he became he 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 immersed himself in it, and that's just to me it just it just made me beam to watch him play those roles. He was excellent at it. Excellent. Thank you. That's a high compliment. So Jody, that about him that you know a couple times when we thought our disguises went kind of off the rails, and then we. Somebody, this book came out, somebody had taken all these photographs of Stasi agents in disguise, and they looked like our most bizarre ones. It was oh, shocking. I want, I want to see that book. Jonna, we oh. have it. Jonna, we have it. We'll show it to you. It, it's Excellent. extraordinary. And Joe's exactly right, where we had a lot of fun just laughing at some of the, the it was like the 1970s era, too. So right. if you think about the sideburns and the bad hair and the suits, it was yeah. glorious. Tracy, you've been trying to say something. Oh, no, it's okay. Um, I think for, for me, you know, I don't have a TV show or anything like that, but I think for me, um, I am someone who, you know, I don't, I can be shy performing in front of, you know, a huge audience. So for me, you know, acting wouldn't be something that I would excel in. But, you know, being able to be on the espionage side, right, running SCRs or handling assets, in a strange way, the disguise and all of that gave me permission to act, but without an audience. You know, it was just a one-on-one -on -one kind of situation. So I was acting, I mean, I was going to strip clubs. I was going into places that I would not have normally done, but I wasn't doing that in front of an audience of thousands or millions or hundreds. It was, you know, one-on-one -on -one more type of situation. So. I think for me, it was probably easier being a spy in uh, acting as a civilian, um, strangely, than the other way around. Um, just a quick follow-up for um, Tracy. Folks want to know if you ever regretted leaving the CIA, especially after this, how things unfolded <laughs> at the FBI. So, um, yeah, I um, there are times, um, because... Like what Jonna um, was saying, I had such a wonderful experience at the CIA. I, I won awards. I was very successful there, and I'm still in contact with a lot of folks there. Um, I don't know that I regret leaving because the reason that I left, which was the whole overseas, I, I had become burnt out, um, is something that will never change about the agency and should never change about the agency. So I think I left for the right reasons. However, I think the regret may be in that I was naive um, in terms of how the Bureau would be. I think that's more where the re regret is. I miss the camaraderie 
of the agency. I miss the people, you know, what we had talked about before. Um, but I don't necessarily have a have a regret. And for those, let me sorry, let me jump in real quick. For those you know who are going to read Tracy's book and haven't yet, which that's the list at this point, um, you were around presidents and vice presidents and directors of agencies, so you were highly successful in your job at CIA. So this is one where you got to see, you know, not only at a desk at the basement of Langley, but you were in the middle of everything there too. I just want to let people know that that's the kind of person that you're you're hearing from. All right, Amanda, sorry. No, that's okay. This one was rather specifically for Joe about people identifying strongly with um, the protagonists of stories, whether they're good or evil. And how did you feel about creating these protagonists who were doing, you know, terrible things to Americans? You know, it sort of goes back to that earlier discussion. That's really what I wanted to do because after reading that book I mentioned about Chirkashian, I had a sort of change in vision. And I thought, well, if these guys are just like us, they think CIA officers are doing terrible things to Soviets. It's, I'm not sure it's really any different. So, you know, showing that became uh, uh, both interesting, but also also a lot of fun because it was not what people expected. Um, so, Tracy, people mentioned your experience of gender bias and misogyny. How, do any of you know how is the KGB as a workplace environment for um, for women? And they also mentioned it was great to see Al Wood, Vince. Oh, yeah, it's tail went through, yes. <laughs> All right, so uh, Amanda, are you asking about the KGB during the Cold War or the SVR today? So, you... Well, Tracy's, you know, Tracy's not been out, you know, she was not a cold warrior, so... They were asking if any of you all knew anything about um, gender bias amongst. So the KGB is not the proper name right now. Get it? But they were using that as shorthand for the um, Russian intelligence services. Well, what one of our most successful operations in Moscow, and this was back during the Cold War, was when we sent in a female operations officer. It was it was a groundbreaking, ceiling shattering kind of thing to run the most sensitive case that we had at that time. We sent in a woman and we sent her in expressly. Well, first of all, she was an excellent officer. I don't mean to make light of any of that, but we sent her in expressly because the, the, we knew back then the KGB would not use women, did not use women. And we thought they would never suspect a woman. And we were right. They never even gave her any surveillance while she was in, in the city. She did a phenomenal job of uh, what she did. Her name was Peterson, Marty Peterson, and she's uh, something of a hero, even today at CIA. You know, well, I'll, add something about, I'll add something about that era, which is that, you know, the Soviet Union in general was pretty complicated in terms of women. A lot of their ideas and some of their actuality was very progressive and others was not. Uh, and I think that in general, as, as Jonah said, they didn't use women really. And there were very few women working there in, in that kind of role. But with the illegals, it was interesting because a number of the actual illegals who came over came as married teams, but they were not equal teams. The man was kind of the main spy and the woman was a kind of support officer who often handled communications or, or something like that. That's interesting. Yeah, I mean, right. we, certainly, we certainly know about how the Soviets and now even the Russians used women uh, as as honey traps and 
things that we certainly don't do in the United States. In fact, the CIA, it's against the law. Uh, you can get fired from the CIA uh, for using sex in any way. The Soviets train a lot of their women to use this as kind of the first line of in, in, enticing Western men uh, and women, uh, whether Romeo spies like Philip in does, you know, uses his looks and his skills and with Martha. That's not that's the least stretch uh, because, well, if he was yeah. East German, it would be even more because the East German had Romeos all over the place. But the idea that, you know, using uh, women as for their bodies versus for their skills is something that was was and still continues to be a hallmark of Russian intelligence that we don't do. And so every Western female intelligence officer will spend her career with the people that know what she does for, for a living asking if we've ever killed anyone and do we have to sleep with people to collect intelligence? That's a legacy that will, you know, continue because they do it. If um, any of you were entering the intelligence field today with the knowledge that you have now, what do you think would now most contribute to your success? You know, they're good questions when everyone's like, this is really, I really think about question. that. I think, I think the knowledge that the CIA, at least, was, uh, was, was really pretty much a merit-based organization. And that's sort of the ladder that I climbed. Uh, if you could do it, typically they would let you do it. And, and, and so I was able to move around and move up and move up. But of course I hit, I hit my, my plateau like so many women there did. There, there were plateaus that were built into the system and you couldn't ever identify. Why is it that there aren't very many female GS-15s? And why is it that on the seventh floor, the, the upper echelon of the CIA, women flourished and they did for years and years and they do today. They are running the place right now, females at the CIA. But in those career paths, there are these stops that are built in that, that you can't, um, you still can't proceed beyond them. Anybody else have a, a new skill that they'd like to take with them into the, into the community? And ponying onto that, is there ever a situation or something that you hear about that makes any of you wish that you were back and active? So Joe, Joe, let me pony this up for you because I can see the, the, the wheels turning. You've actually mentioned that you probably made a mistake in joining CIA. If you, <laughs> you have 17 agencies now to choose from, if you're graduating from Yale right now, would there be a different intelligence agency that you think that you might find more appealing to you than CIA? Would it, you know, would it be the FBI? You know, or would it be something like DIA or even some of the lesser known, whether it's Department of Treasury or others, that you could put your skills to the test. Well, I, I just want to clarify, I don't, I don't feel that it was a mistake that I joined the CIA. Um, I had a great experience there and I learned a lot and I, and I had fun. And, and as everybody keeps saying, the people there are incredible. So as a group of colleagues and lifelong friends, I, I mean, it was, it was terrific. Um, but I think that I eventually maybe already was and certainly became someone who just wasn't psychologically suited to living a secret life. So, you know, I, I think for that reason, it probably would not be a place that I would want to want to spend a whole a whole career. Um, you know, I think if I were if I were to 
still want to devote myself to you know the world of foreign affairs i i think i'd probably go to the state department i think might be a, a better fit if you like that world but don't want to be secret all the time right so stan beeman is not the joe weisberg proxy on <laughs> <laughs> well there, look there's always a part of me that you know you want to be james bond you want to be you know an fbi the sort of part there's a sort of myth of how fun all, i'm not even saying it's always a myth but how fun all that is and i do still have that part of me for sure i used to tell the story that you know when my training class that i joined the cia with however many of us there were it was not a small group that really i think everybody even even though they knew better kind of thought they were going to be james bond and then the very first thing that happens in your training is you're in a like months long course where you sit in a room and literally the course is called administrative structure of the cia and by the end of that course you are cured of your illusions then some of them come back a little bit but <laughs> um i have a very specific uh cool question for tracy when you were in africa did you notice a growing chinese influence at that time that's a great question um yes but in a different way than i think we may see it today day. Um, obviously in Africa, I saw the Al-Qaeda influence. Clearly, that's why I was there. Um, however, I think I saw the China influence mostly um, in regards to infrastructure. Um, you know, China was really, at that time in the countries that I was in, um, really building up uh, roads, um, assisting with oil rigs, assisting with mining, those kinds of things. Um, and I think, you know, they were trying to get at their natural resources, obviously. I, I think now, um, the assistance with infrastructure might have a different purpose um, probably than it did back in the early 2000s. Um, but yes, I did I did see that. I think I saw, try not to give away locations, um, but it, it was very obvious um, the amount of Chinese ships um, that, that were around. Um, and so I, I think that was something I wasn't prepared for um, that I definitely noticed. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, Jana, a disguise one. What are the differences and challenges between preparing a short-term disguise like Argo or a long-term one such as the folks in the Americans were living? So, Oh boy. Well, disguise was just, uh, it was location dependent. It, it was situational. It was every time you did a disguise, you had to interview the person to get all the information. Where are you going to be? how what's the is it humid what's the climate are you inside or outside are you trying to fill people across the table from you or across a room for you for how long do you have to wear this thing before you can like get out of it it was it was a, a, a requirement definition that was that was really long um and 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 then you would you would um if it was someone who's going to be debriefing someone overseas for a week across the table every day same thing we might actually dye that person's hair. We, we, we might make more permanent changes to them, permanent disguises. If they could, if we had two weeks, we might let them grow a little bit of a beard or a mustache. Um, we could do it that way to the extent that you could go through airport immigration in your disguise and it wouldn't be fake and phony. It would be actually real. Um, those were easy for us. They were more difficult for the person who, who had to grow the beard. <laughs> The short-term disguises came with their own with their own limits. Uh, you know, if you put on a wig or a toupee or a mustache or a beard, or you better know how to wear it. 
you need to wear it well because there's nothing worse than having someone across the table from you discover that you are wearing a disguise. It kind of puts a grip in whatever you're doing. <laughs> well, I with think a, with for, a mustache half falling off. Yeah, not good. I think for our last question, everybody needs some help with their viewing list. And um, what are they going to watch? Uh, we might be loosening up, but we still are going to be home a lot. Are there any shows um, besides The Americans that you think have good realism or at least attempt towards realism? I'm going to go with a book because one of my favorite books uh, is called Ashenden by Somerset Mom, And it's a spy story that is deeply deeply realistic but also a lot of fun and a great read what's it what's it called ashenden oh, okay yeah reading or viewing that was great thank you for taking us into the book world yeah and you can also just say you know moscow rules by john and mendez <laughs> or tracy maybe you want to promote a certain book that you've written uh for me the most realistic and this this is a movie so it's not really fair um but again i wasn't around sort of in the the cold war era but for me one of the more realistic although it still is hollywood um it is probably zero dark 30 um by uh, Catherine bigelow just because it was the life that i had lived um during the time that i was there it's not without its um hollywoodness i guess but um i do believe that there are portions of it that are realistic and for novelty, let me throw in that I'm I'm the one who never watches any spy stuff. I just do not. Jason Bourne, all of it, almost all of it, Alias, I never saw it. I don't watch because it irritates me because it's not right. I watched The Americans. I binge watched. Amanda Oki, you might remember, I binge watched The Americans. It took me like two weeks because I didn't know you were on for six seasons. <laughs> Now in my quarantine, I'm dipping into my treasure trove of things I've never seen. And I just finished Homeland. I'm the last one. I must be the last one. I've never seen it. And and it wasn't as bad as I thought it would be. <laughs> but I'm, not, I'm not putting it out there. But Carrie, you know, Carrie would have never, ever made it. <laughs> it would have thrown her out. That, you know what, you, know, you just answered a question that someone had that i didn't yeah. get to they wanted to know if someone like that would have made it so well, let me round it off by going international and saying this the third season of fauda just went up on netflix and it's it is in israeli uh spy special operations um series that's exceptionally good um and it's uh it, it gets as close as the americans does when we're talking about things like tradecraft uh and how they work against a constant threat. Uh, if you're willing to read, uh, you're gonna have to because it's not it, it's in English if it's dubbed, but mostly it's subtitled from Hebrew and Arabic and other things. But Fauda is exceptionally good and very realistic as well. Great. Well, I want to thank everybody. We're just a few minutes over, but no one will mind that. I have to thank you all so much for joining us. Um, this program, like others, will um, appear on our YouTube channel if you want to see it again. Um, we hope you'll join us for other programs. We have a pretty cool happy hour at 5.30 Eastern time tonight. Vince will be back with us. He's going to be talking about balloon spies, and his guest will be the chief 
scientists of NASA, Jim Green. So we have got more treasures in store for you. And we hope you'll check our website for other programs that we're offering. And if you like this or other things that we're doing and you want to contribute to our mission resilience, we'd sure appreciate it because we want to keep doing this. So thank you, everyone. Stay well. Thanks, everybody. Thank you. Bye-bye. The International Spy Museum is a full 501c3 nonprofit. If you want to donate to the museum, or if you're local and want to volunteer at the museum, please visit our website at spymuseum.org for more information. Hey all, Rick here. At N2K CyberWire, we're dedicated to continuously improving the quality of the news and commentary on our network. That's why we're inviting you to participate in our 2024 audience survey. It only takes a few minutes and your feedback is invaluable. Plus, you'll have the chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card as a thank you for your time. Head on over to cyberwire.com survey. That's cyberwire.com survey to share your feedback now.